Well, that's a hard act to follow, <laughs> but we'll try. All right, a couple uh, reinforcing announcements that you have probably already seen, but uh, you may not have uh, looked at the email or whatever. But uh, <clears throat> Aaron will be here next weekend with his family. Uh, <clears throat> I guess the, uh, <clears throat> the key thing that I wanted to mention is that two weeks following his visit, we will have a congregational vote. And uh, <clears throat> for that vote, we're going to ask members, but also regular attendees who are not members, we're going to invite you to vote as well. And uh, <clears throat> for the official tally, uh, it'll just be the count of, of actual members, but it would be helpful, we think, for, for non-members who attend on a regular basis to uh, give us their sense as well as to whether God is leading us forward with, uh, with this candidate. So uh, that'll be two weeks following the visit next week. Uh, <clears throat> there will be uh, ballots available on uh, for for anyone who's not going to be here that Sunday, April 3rd, there will be absentee ballots available in the back, uh, the, the, inner, the middle Sunday between those, the 27th. So you can get one of those ballots uh, at that time and help us to uh, think through this decision. Second uh, announcement that is uh, significant here for the series of studies we're doing in Christian unity <clears throat> is that Dick Close has volunteered once again to do a uh, correspondence study of nine weeks in the book of James. The book of James has some important things to say about the unity of God's people, and uh, we thought this would be a, a great time to do some study together. If you're interested in that, uh, you'll need to contact Dick. You can do that by email or by phone. If you don't have uh, email, which is what he's going to use to send back and forth, he has volunteered to do snail mail with people who uh, <clears throat> still use snail mail for those things, okay? So uh, opportunities here to be in the Word and to be growing together as we... <clears throat> Seek to be obedient to the Lord. All right. Last week we started a series on this theme of unity or oneness. And <clears throat> we looked at the, the prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17, where he prayed specifically for the unity of his followers. That they may be one, he said, as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, that they may also be in us, <clears throat> that the world may know that you have sent me. This is important because, as we talked about it last week, <clears throat> there are 
centrifugal forces that are very much at work in the world, but because it's in the world, it's unfortunately also in the church. These forces that tend to blow us apart, to work counter to the unity of God's people. <clears throat> and so the prayer that Jesus prayed is uh, immensely important that way. You know, part of the prayer is for protection from the enemy. And when you think about that, how does the enemy work among us? Well, he works by separating us, by building antagonisms and resentments and all that kind of stuff. And then we noted that this prayer is so important because Jesus ties evangelistic effectiveness to the practice of unity. And I, I think for many years, I didn't see that connection. You know, we tend to think about evangelism as proper technique, or if not proper technique, uh, proper teaching and doctrine. <clears throat> and of course, all those things are are significant and, and play into the issue of how people come to Christ. But for years, I didn't see this connection that Jesus makes very explicitly. That they may be one so that the world may believe. And as we think about Grace Bible Church and the future, <clears throat> about growth, particularly, I think what, what we want most is not to grow by pulling people from other churches, but to grow by seeing people who don't know the Lord come to faith. That's, that's the really exciting growth. And our Lord says, that the world believes when it sees the reality of faith worked out in the unity of God's people. And, uh, I mean, there's just no question that the church in America today is, is blowing itself apart and we are being observed. And in effect, people say, and I think they, they say justly, <clears throat> if, if the fragmentation that we see in the broader culture, we also see in the church that claims to know Jesus, if we see the same thing there, well, why bother? Right? Let's, let's play golf or Whatever, but, but what is the point if the church <clears throat> doesn't look different from the surrounding culture? All right, so that's where we were last week. <clears throat> Today I want to pick up on some similar words by Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, where he talks about the unity of the Spirit. 
As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, you see the the highlighted phrase, that's, that's the heart of this paragraph. This is what Paul wants to get across to us. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Make every effort for that. Now, just think about that, that statement just for a minute. It obviously assumes, does it not, <clears throat> that there is already a unity that exists. So we're to keep a unity that exists. We're not to establish it. That's not our job, right? But we're to, we're to keep, maintain the unity that he exists, that he says exists. <clears throat> and he goes on to talk about what that unity is in the, the next three verses. And I highlight that. The unity is this, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Now, if you're counting, you count how many? Seven. And you know from your Bibles that... Seven is a number that shows up in a lot of different places, and it, it, has a, it often has a symbolical value, right? And it's a value that speaks of uh, completeness or wholeness or sometimes perfection. And so I don't think it's uh, accidental at all that, that Paul identifies seven elements of unity here. Now, is there a way to pull those seven together to think about what he's talking about? Is there kind of an overarching, unifying theme that runs through those seven? I'm going to take a shot at it. Uh, Let's suggest that what he's talking about is life in the Trinity. Definitely a Trinitarian structure here, right? A threefold structure Uh, Father, Son, and Spirit, although the order he gives is actually Spirit, Son, Father. One God, that's the unity, one God who exists in three persons. That's the way Christians have learned to talk about this reality. Life in the Trinity God the three-in-one, and there's our icon picture, which has so much symbolism in it, 
and uh, we won't talk about all that that's symbolism at this point, but, <clears throat> but that's, the, that's the foundation of unity. One God existing in threeness, three persons. And that God exists, as we noted last week in the prayer of Jesus, That God is one, as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. May the disciples be one in us. And we talked about that unity last week. It's a unity of truth, of love, of purpose, and of action. At least those elements, right? And I highlight... I highlight the yellow because that's where we're going to go next in this little series. That the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one in truth, and, and therefore you and I, in being diligent to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, you and I are to be one in truth as well, as God is one. <clears throat> but as soon as you say that, you immediately sense, oh, there, there's some tricky things here, right? Because it's not hard to look across <clears throat> the church, to look across church history, and to find out that it was often discussions about the truth that blew, that blew people apart. So, so all heresy in the history of the church is debate about what is true. Huh? And, uh, and so we have to think about this. If Paul is saying we maintain the unity of the Spirit and we, we do it in the unity of truth, well, how does that work? And it's got enough important questions about it that I thought, well, let's do this. Let's, uh, let's ask Todd Mangum to come and take up those uh, hard questions. <clears throat> and one reason I, I do this is that some of you old-timers will remember that a number of years ago, Todd did talk with the church about these questions, and he even had, I understand there was even a set of hand motions that went with it. And I, I have never seen the hand motions, and I'd kind of like to. And so uh, I'm going to ask Todd to come in and spend a little time with us talking about, about truth as a basis for unity. And how does that, how does that actually work? <clears throat> and love, purpose, and action, uh, I think we'll get to later. So the unity that we're to maintain is the unity that already exists between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we've said before, you know, in this icon, there's, a, there's an invitation, isn't there? There's a place at the table where you and I are invited to uh, enter. And so we are people invited into 
the eternal fellowship of love, which is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and uh, and it's, great, it's great to be invited to the table. The only problem is, everybody around you has also been invited to the table. That's the problem, see? And, and so... We, we need to be aware of that. How do we deal with the fact <clears throat> that the person that you actually might not like is also seated at the table, has gotten the same invitation that you received? God seems very undiscriminating sometimes, doesn't he? Well, that's what we have to be concerned about. And, and Paul says, give all diligence to maintain that unity. So, there is one God, and we have life in him because there's one plan of salvation. I think the other four terms that show up in this, uh, this section of verses are pointing us to that one plan of salvation. So, the Father is the one who creates the one family of God. He is, Paul says, over all, through all, and in all. It's not exactly clear whether over all means over all things. That would be true, right? Or whether he's really saying he is over all members of the family of believers. He's over all of them. He is the ultimate authority. He is through all. So the Father is working through all the members of the body. Even, even the ones that you're not sure he's working through. And he's working in all of them. He's actually doing his transforming work in the lives of all the members of the family. And there's one Lord. And this one Lord creates one hope. Again, think about it. Think how often Christians have disagreed on the details of the one hope. But the reality is that there is ultimately just one hope. That's the hope that the Lord himself will return, <clears throat> that he will take us to be with himself. He'll take us to the Father's house. There's one hope. There is one faith. There is one faith that centers in what Jesus has done in his life and his death and his resurrection. We sang about that quite a bit this morning in our opening songs. It is the cross of Jesus which is right at the center, or maybe better said, the cross and the resurrection, the empty tomb, right at the center of our faith. There is faith in no one else and nothing else that can save and deliver us. <clears throat> and there's one baptism. Baptism speaks of our union together with Christ. 
And there is one baptism, baptism into Jesus. And finally, there's one spirit, and the work of the one spirit is to create one body, to unite all these diverse people together in one body whose head is Jesus. It takes its power and energy and direction from the head. These are the realities. This is life in the Trinity. And this is the center and basis of our unity, says Paul. Now, <clears throat> the injunction is keep that unity. Preserve that in the way you live together. And to do that, he identifies four qualities that serve as a kind of checklist, I guess. We think, well, you know, is that, is that a mark of my life? Is that the way I relate to other believers? So let's note them uh, briefly here. Humility. Yes, with, with humility, deal with each other. The opposite of humility is pride. Here's a Looks to me like Alfred Hitchcock for you old timers there. Doesn't it kind of look like Hitchcock? Uh, and kind of gets his attitude, I think. Uh, his posture speaks of, of pride. The, uh, the image in the background is suggestive of, of how this character is thinking about himself in uh, inflated or exalted ways. Sometimes we describe a a proud person as someone who looks down their nose at other people, right? And kind of captured that in in the picture here. That's pride. Looking down, humility is the reverse. Humility looks up to others. Here's what Paul says in Philippians, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Humility. Keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace and do it with humility. And then with humility goes gentleness. Gentleness, I would say, is, is, among other things, it's power under control. I mean, it wouldn't take much to uh, mash that little bird. The person whose hands are cupped there could easily take the life out of that little bird. But but power under control can yield gentleness. The opposite of that, Ferdinand in the china shop, huh? And we know that, uh, that image too, right? What's the problem there? Well, it's, it's power, but the problem isn't power. It's power that's not sufficiently controlled. There's going, to be, uh, there's going to be a lot of wreckage in the china shop. And 
part of the challenge in the church is that when we're supposed to be working on unity, we've been exercising power without control, without the question of what's going to happen if I say this, what's going to happen if I do this. So Paul encourages us to gentleness. Now, having said that, you notice that those two qualities, humility and gentleness, are the qualities of Jesus himself. Matthew chapter 11, what does he say? He says, come to me, all you who are uh, weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, because I am gentle and I am humble of heart. That's who he is. Power, the power of God himself, under control in ways that benefited, benefited us. Gentleness and humility. Third quality here is patience. Patience is the ability to wait. The willingness to wait. And I, I bumped into this quote this week that I thought was helpful too. Patience is not about how long you can wait. I think it is actually related to that. But, but this additional part is good too. It's how well you behave while you're waiting. <clears throat> See, I, I'm learning how to wait uh, behind some of you who, when you're driving your car, are talking on the phone. You know, you can always spot those folks because they're going 10 miles an hour slower than everybody else. So I, I'm learning how to wait. <clears throat> uh, but my wife reminds me occasionally that I don't always behave well while I'm waiting. So I'm, I'm trying to learn that as well. And this comes up over and over again in, in the church, right? Where we have to learn to wait upon and wait for one another because things often don't go our way or they don't go as quickly as we would like. Being together as a body, moving together with the leading of the Spirit is often not particularly efficient. See, our, our culture is always talking to us about efficiency and getting it done. Get, get the experts on it and make the decision and make it happen. Now, those, those qualities can be valuable, but they can also get in the way of the unity of the Spirit. I don't, I don't think the Spirit of God, I don't think Jesus or the apostles were all that concerned about efficiency. Efficiency. 
And hence, they had time for patience. And of course, they had to learn it the way you and I have to learn it. If you look at Peter in the Gospels, Peter is anything but a patient guy. But there's a very different Peter when you get to the end of his life and you read what he has to say, for example, in his first letter. Peter has learned patience because he spent time in the presence of Jesus. And closely allied to patience is forbearance. So I kind of like this uh, little cartoon on forbearing here. Forbearing means marked by calm patience, especially under provocation. So this guy's trying to read his newspaper with an irritating parrot on his head who says, turn the page, sweetie, turn the page. And he looks pretty calm. I mean, you think you just swat the bird away, right? But he's forbearing. And I need that, and you need that as we deal with one another because there are irritations that are always there. Keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Give all diligence to this. It's it's hard, friends. It's always a challenge for us to do this. And the world around us knows little about these qualities, so we're being... We're often being discipled by the world into the very qualities that work against expressions of unity. Well, this morning we're going to celebrate communion. Wes is going to come and lead us in that. And you know, the communion is, among other things, it is a celebration of unity. We eat the one bread together, Paul says, and we remind ourselves that we are one body. So why don't we finish up with this uh, prayer that I've uh, printed sometimes in our bulletin over the last number of years. I always find it a a thought-provoking prayer. It comes to us from China. Let me... Read it for us as we close, and then Wes, you can come up. Think about these words. Help each one of us, gracious Father, to live in such magnanimity, which means generosity, generous forgiveness, such magnanimity and restraint, that the head of the church may never have cause to say to any one of us, this is my body broken by you. Wes.